Chapter 4, Part 3 of The American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter 4, American and English Today, Part 3. Honorifics. Among the honorifics and euphemisms in everyday use, one finds many notable divergences between the two languages. On one hand, the English are almost as diligent as the Germans in bestowing titles of honor upon their men of mark, and on the other hand, they are very careful to withhold such titles from men who do not legally bear them. In America, every practitioner of any branch of healing art, even a chiropodist or an osteopath, is a doctor, ipso facto. But in England, as we have seen, many good surgeons lack the title, and it is not common in the lesser ranks. Even graduate physicians may not have it, but here there is a yielding of the usual meticulous exactness, and it is customary to address a physician in the second person as doctor, although his card may show that he is only medicine baccalaureus, a degree quite unknown in America. Thus, an Englishman, when he is ill, always sends for the doctor, as we do. But a surgeon is usually plain mister, an English veterinarian, or dentist, or druggist, or masseur, is never doctor, nor professor. In all, save a few large cities of America, every male pedagogue is a professor, and so is every band leader, dancing master, and medical consultant. But in England the title is very rigidly restricted to men who hold chairs in the universities, a necessarily small body. Even here, a superior title always takes precedence. Thus, it used to be Professor Almuth Wright, but now it is always Sir Almuth Wright. Huxley was always called Professor Huxley until he was appointed to the Privy Council. This appointment gave him the right to have Right Honorable put before his name and thereafter it was customary to call him simply Mr. Huxley, with the right honorable, so to speak, floating in the air. The combination to an Englishman was more flattering than professor, for the English always esteem political dignities far more than the dignities of learning. This explains, perhaps, why their universities distribute so few honorary degrees. In the United States, every respectable Protestant clergyman is a D.D., and it is almost impossible for a man to get into the papers without becoming an LLD. But in England, such honors are granted only grudgingly. So with military titles. To promote a war veteran from sergeant to colonel by acclamation, as is often done in the United States, is unknown over there. The English have nothing equivalent to the gaudy tin soldiers of our governor's staffs, nor to the bespangled colonels and generals of the Knights Templar, and patriarchs militant, nor to the nondescript captains and majors of our country towns. An English railroad conductor, railway guard, is never captain as he always is in the United States, nor are military titles used by the police, nor is it the custom to make every newspaper editor a colonel, as is done south of the Potomac, nor is an attorney general or postmaster general called general, nor are the glories of public office after they have officially come to an end, embalmed in such clumsy quasi-titles as ex-United States Senator 
ex-judge of the Circuit Court of Appeals, ex-Federal Trade Commissioner, and former Chief of the Fire Department. But perhaps the greatest difference between English and American usage is presented by the Honorable. In the United States, the title is applied loosely to all public officials of apparent respectability, from senators and ambassadors to the mayors of fifth-rate cities and the members of state legislatures, and with some show of official sanction to many of them, especially congressmen. But it is questionable whether this application has any actual legal standing, save perhaps in the case of certain judges. Even the President of the United States, by law, is not the Honorable, but simply the President. In the first Congress, the matter of his title was exhaustively debated. Some members wanted to call him the Honorable, and others proposed His Excellency and even His Highness. But the two houses finally decided it was not proper to annex any style or title other than that expressed by the Constitution. Congressmen themselves are not honorables. True enough, the Congressional record in printing a set speech calls it speech of Honorable John Jones without the the before the honorable, a characteristic Americanism. But in reporting the ordinary remarks of a member, it always calls him plain Mr. Nevertheless, a country congressman would be offended if his partisans in announcing his appearance on the stump did not prefix honorable to his name. So would a state senator. So would a mayor or governor. I have seen the sergeant-at-arms of the United States Senate referred to as honorable in the records of that body. Moreover, the prefix is actually usurped by the superintendent of state prisons of New York. In England, the thing is more carefully ordered, and all bogus honorables are unknown. The prefix is applied to both sexes and belongs by law inter alia to all present or past maids of honor, to all justices of the high court during their terms of office, to the Scotch lords of session, to the sons and daughters of viscounts and barons, to the younger sons and daughters of all earls, and to the members of the legislative and executive councils of the colony, but not to members of parliament, though each is in debate an honorable gentleman. Even a member of the cabinet is not an honorable, though he is a right honorable by virtue of membership in the Privy Council, of which the cabinet is legally merely a committee. The last honorific belongs not only to Privy Councillors, but also to all peers lower than Marquesas. Those above are most honorable. To Lord Mayors during their terms of office, to the Lord Advocate, and to the Lord Provosts of Edinburgh and Glasgow. Moreover, a peeress, whose husband is a right honorable, is a right honorable herself. The British colonies follow the jealous usage of the mother country. Even in Canada, the lawless American example is not imitated. I have before me a, quote, table of titles to be used in Canada, close quote, laid down by royal warrant, which lists those who are honorables and those who are not honorables in the utmost detail. Only privy councillors of Canada, not to be confused with imperial privy councillors, are permitted to retain the prefix after going out of office. Though ancients who were legislative councillors at the time of the Union, July 1, 1867, may still use it by sort of a courtesy, and former speakers of the Dominion Senate and House of Commons 
and various retired judges may do so on application to the king, countersigned by the governor-general. The following are lawfully the honorable, but only during their tenure of office. The solicitor-general, the speaker of the House of Commons, the presidents and speakers of the provincial legislatures, members of the executive councils of the provinces, the chief justice, the judges of the supreme and exchequer courts, the judges of the supreme courts of Ontario, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, British Columbia, Prince Edward Island, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, the judges of the courts of appeal of Manitoba and British Columbia, and the Chancery Court of Prince Edward Island, and the Circuit Court of Montreal, these and no more. A lieutenant governor of a province is not the honorable, but his honor. The governor general is his excellency, and so is his wife, but in practice they usually have superior honorifics and do not forget to demand their use. But though an Englishman, and following him a colonial, is thus very careful to restrict the honorable to proper uses. He always insists, when he serves without pay as an officer of any organization, to indicate his volunteer character by writing honorable before the name of his office. If he leaves it off, it is a sign that he is a hireling. Thus the agent of the New Zealand government in London, a paid officer, is simply the agent. But the agents at Brisbane and Adelaide in Australia, who serve for the glory of it, are honorable agents. In writing to a Briton, one must be careful to put Esquire behind his name and not Mr. before it. The English make a clear distinction between the two forms. Mr. on an envelope indicates that the sender holds the receiver to be his inferior. One writes to Mr. John Jackson, one's greengrocer, but to James Thompson, Esquire, one's neighbor. Any man who is entitled to the Esquire is a gentleman by which an Englishman means a man of sound connections and dignified occupation, in brief, of ponderable social position. Thus, a dentist, a shopkeeper, or a clerk can never be a gentleman in England, even by courtesy, and the qualifications of an author, a musical conductor, a physician, or even a member of Parliament have to be established. But though he is thus enormously watchful of his masculine dignity, an Englishman is quite careless in the use of lady. He speaks glibly of lady clerks, lady typists, lady doctors, and lady inspectors. In America, there is a strong disposition to use the word less and less, as is revealed by the substitution of saleswoman and salesgirl for the saleslady of yesteryear. But in England, lady is still invariably used instead of woman in such compounds as lady golfer, lady secretary, and lady champion. The women's singles in English tennis are always ladies' singles. Women's wear in English shops is always ladies' wear. Perhaps the cause of this distinction between lady and gentleman has been explained by Price Collier in, quote, England and the English, close quote. In England, according to Collier, the male is always first, his comfort goes before his wife's comfort and maybe his dignity also. Gentleman clerk or gentleman author would make an Englishman howl, though he uses gentleman writer. So would the growing American custom of designating successive heirs of a private family by the numerals proper to royalty. 
John Smith III and William Simpson IV are gravely received at Harvard. At Oxford, they would be ragged unmercifully. An Englishman, in speaking or writing of public officials, avoids those long and clumsy combination of title and name, which figure so copiously in American newspapers. Such locutions as Assistant Secretary of the Interior Jones, Fourth Assistant Postmaster General Brown, Inspector of Boilers Smith, Judge of the Appeal Tax Court Robinson, Chief Clerk of the Treasury Williams, and collaborating epidermiologist White are quite unknown to him. When he mentions a high official, such as the Secretary for Foreign Affairs, he does not think it necessary to add the man's name. He says simply, the Secretary for Foreign Affairs, or the Foreign Secretary. And so with the Lord Chancellor, the Chief Justice, the Prime Minister, the Bishop of Carlisle, the Chief Rabbi, the First Lord of the Admiralty, the Master of Pembroke College, the Italian Ambassador, and so on. Certain ecclesiastical titles are sometimes coupled to surnames in the American manner, such as Dean Stanley and Canon Wilberforce. But Prime Minister Lord George would seem heavy and absurd. But in other directions, the Englishman has a certain clumsiness of his own. Thus, in writing a letter to a relative stranger, he sometimes begins it not, My dear Mr. Jones, but My dear John Joseph Jones. He may even use such a form as My dear Secretary for War in place of the American My dear Mr. Secretary. In English usage, incidentally, My dear is more formal than simply dear. In America, of course, this distinction is lost, and such forms as My dear John Joseph Jones appear only as conscious imitations of English usage. I have spoken of the American custom of dropping the definite article before honorable. It extends to reverend and the like, and has the authority of very respectable usage behind it. The opening sentence of the congressional record is always, The chaplain, Reverend blank, D.D., offered the following prayer. When chaplains for the Army or Navy are confirmed by the Senate, they always appear in the record as reverends, never as the reverend. I also find the honorific without the article in the New International Encyclopedia and in a widely popular American grammar book. So long ago as 1867, Gould protested against this elison as barbarous and idiotic and drew up the following reducto ad absurdum. At the last annual meeting of the Black Book Society, Honorable John Smith took the chair, assisted by Reverend John Brown and Venerable John White. The office of secretary would have been filled by late John Green, but for his decease which rendered him ineligible. His place was supplied by inevitable John Black. In the course of the evening eulogies, were pronounced on distinguished John Gray and notorious Joseph Brown. Marked compliment was also paid to able historian Joseph White, discriminating philosopher Joseph Green, and learned professor Joseph Black. But conspicuous speech of the evening was witty Joseph Gray's apostrophe to eminent astronomer Jacob Brown, subtle logician Jacob White, etc., etc. 
Richard Grant White, a year or two later, joined the attack in the New York Galaxy, and William Cullen Bryant included the omission of the article in his Index Expurgatorius. But these anathemas were ineffective as Gould's irony. The more careful American journals, of course, inclined to the the, and I note that it is specifically ordained on the style sheet of Century Magazine, but the overwhelming majority of American newspapers get along without it, and I have often noticed its omission on the signboards at church entrances. In England, it is never omitted. End of chapter 4, part 3. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona.